You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia and Catula, the Whedon Foundation, and listeners like you. If you love the work Rewilding is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're there. Professor Tom Rooney is an ecologist, conservation biologist, and advocate for good stewardship of wild places and the wild things that live there. His scientific reputation is built on the management problems and challenges posed by white-tailed deer. His research examines the role of deer in forest ecosystems and has been featured in the New York Times, Science Times, Discover Magazine, Washington Monthly, Nautilus Magazine, and other publications. Today I spoke with Tom about his work in the upper Midwest, and he had some surprisingly good news around wolves and their effects on flora and fauna in the region, as well as what it might take to improve connectivity among the areas affected by high road densities and other barriers to wildlife movement. Can you give us some background on how you came to be involved in the Wright State University conservation work that you're doing? Sure, it's it's been a bit of a long journey uh, getting here, and uh, I'll take it back about um, about 25 years ago. I was a, an undergraduate student uh, at the University of Delaware, and uh, started getting involved in ecological research, and was actually uh, started working with predators way back then. Uh, the predators were a lot smaller; they actually fit into my hand. I was working with uh, praying mantises. Mm-hmm. And, and, and wolf spiders. And uh, the research group I was working with there were among the first to demonstrate uh, trophic cascades in terrestrial systems involving invertebrate predators. So uh, I've been doing work on trophic cascades on and off for about 25 years, uh, but it hasn't always involved wolves. From there, uh, I ended up hooking up with, uh, with Don Waller at the University of Wisconsin, uh, and his group was... Uh, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, they were uh, really uh, delving into uh, deer impacts in uh, northern Wisconsin, but more broadly, you know, in areas where there was uh, just an absence of, of apex predators. And uh, I worked on, on plants uh, for my PhD under his supervision and uh, worked on uh, trillium, uh, the large white flower trillium, which uh, I think many people in the East know as one of the, the great charismatic wildflowers of, uh, of the woods. Uh, and this is a species that's particularly impacted by white-tailed deer. So uh, I worked on uh, plant herbivore interactions uh, for a PhD. And then uh, later, after getting a faculty position here, I uh, was able to broaden out a little bit and start looking at, uh, at the broader uh, web of interactions in the forest and started looking at the, uh, the role of wolves as they shape those plant herbivore interactions. So that's, that's sort of how I got here. For our listeners who are in different parts of the country or the world, the history of the wolves in the Great Lakes region, I think you have some surprising things to tell people. Sure. Uh, you know, when most people think of, of wolves in the lower 48, they think, you know, it was an extirpated species that was then uh, reintroduced in the Yellowstone. Uh, and perhaps there was this remnant population up in, uh, in the Great Lakes on Isle Royale. And that's, uh, that's not entirely correct. In fact, uh, when the Endangered Species Act was put in place in 1973, there was still a, a, not a sizable population, but a, but a viable population of wolves in, uh, in northern Minnesota. So Minnesota, um, up by Lake Superior, had one of the last uh, populations of, of wolves in, uh, in the lower 48. 
And uh, around the same time in, in Michigan on Isle Royal National Park, there was a wolf population that had naturally established from Canada back in the, uh, the 1940s or 1950s on that island where they were feeding on, on moose. So uh, the Great Lakes region has had uh, wolves present more or less continuously throughout the 20th century. Uh, although that began the change in the uh, after the Endangered Species Act was uh, was implemented, uh, with protection, wolves were actually able to ex extend uh, east from uh, Minnesota into into Wisconsin and, and into uh, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where they found uh, an abundance of habitat and an abundance of food. Where I do my work in Wisconsin, uh, they appeared in the 1970s, as, as best we can tell, probably about the mid-1970s, and it was uh, really two brothers that were out uh, trying to track wolves in uh, northwestern Wisconsin on snowshoes and skis, uh, trying to do about 30, 35 miles a day through the most remote habitats they could find. And uh, you know, they, they had evidence of, of tracks uh, by the mid-70s, and uh, so the, you know, we had confirmed that the wolves had, had reestablished. Um, and what happened was in the, you know, some work was done in the 1980s saying, well, you know, there's, there's where we know the wolves are, they're, they're roadless areas, there's very few people, there's lots of deer, and there's not a lot of places like that in the States. So we're thinking maybe 100, 150 wolves will be able to ultimately establish in Wisconsin. Uh, fortunately, their model was wrong, and, and wolves initially did settle in those areas, but then began you know, spilling out in areas with higher road densities, higher human population densities. And uh, today, uh, in the Great Lakes region, there's between 4,000 and 5,000 wolves, including about 900 in Wisconsin. Could we call this a rewilding success story, at least in part? We can, um, because the, you know, the wolves have essentially undergone exponential growth uh, for more or less two decades in this region. Um, so at least in the northern third of Wisconsin uh, and the upper peninsula of Michigan and the northern tier of Minnesota, uh, it's... Uh, actually quite common to see uh, to wolf sign, whether it's uh, tracks in winter or, or scats in the spring and summer. Um, when I take my students out in the field, usually it takes us all about 15 or 20 minutes to find a wolf sign once we start looking for it. Wow. So the wolves are there. They're, uh, they're common. Uh, they're not always easy to see, uh, but... Uh, but they're actually a Forest Service uh, friend of mine in Wisconsin once told me, yeah, our area is now pretty thick with wolves, uh, which is not a phrase you hear very often. I don't think I've ever heard that before, <laughs> which probably makes my next question totally obvious. Why? Why do you think, I mean, because it just occurred to me as you're talking about all of this, I'm not used to hearing success stories related to wolves for, for one. And secondly, I, I do hear about the massive struggles that they're having in Oregon and Washington with wildlife services. And it's just basically an all out war on wolves. They just killed aerial gun down a wolf pup that didn't even have the teeth to be a threat yet in the Northwest uh, recently. And why are you guys having such a completely opposite or is it or is it contentious in your area or do you have any sense of how to compare the two what sound like wildly disparate uh situations for wolves boy it's uh there's not a short and easy answer to your question uh but i'll start off with why they've been so successful uh and that is uh when uh when wolves recolonized uh the, the great lakes forests 
you had a handful of wolves and, uh, you know, in Wisconsin, for example, 250,000 deer. Uh, so there was basically no shortage of, of wild food that they could sink their teeth into. And, uh, you know, with the very high deer densities, more or less throughout the state, they were finding suitable habitat almost everywhere. Um, so the wolves were able to uh, expand across the landscape quite rapidly. And um, because there was such an abundance uh, and even distribution of wild food, uh, the conflicts involving uh, people were actually quite low. A second piece of the puzzle is that uh, in, uh, in the Great Lakes region where the wolves are, these are largely um, forested areas where, uh, where farms and uh, raising a livestock is actually uncommon. And so as a result, you end up with fewer conflicts between uh, farmers and ranchers and, and with wolves. Um, Minnesota has actually been uh, quite successful on sort of the border region where you do transition over from, from forests to, to farms for, for a number of decades, where when you'd get a problem wolf, that wolf would be very quickly be dispatched. Um, and it's typically... Um, juvenile male wolves that are inexperienced that cause the bulk of problems on farms. And if you can uh, you know, basically eliminate those wolves or move them to some other area where they're not in contact with people, that solves the problem quite quickly. So the conflicts were just not as intense as we're seeing out uh, further in the West. And then sort of a, a final piece, it's not to say everything is all well and good with wolves. They're still fairly controversial in, uh, in the Great Lakes region. Uh, particularly in areas where people live. Uh, there are a lot of conflicts involving uh, people and, and their dogs, particularly hunting dogs. And with wolves now on the landscape, the, a practice where people would hunt bears with, uh, with dogs uh, has become extremely risky uh, because uh, wolves will not tolerate dogs in their habitat and as a result will often kill, uh, kill dogs, kill hunting dogs as they're trying to, uh, to flush bear. So... Um, that's also spilled over a little bit and is affecting domestic uh, people's pets as well. You can't let your dog out in the yard anymore unless it's fenced in. Uh, so there, there are uh, conflicts that, that persist in the Great Lakes region as well, but there's sort of a different kind of conflict that we see out in the western uh, part of the U.S. Yeah, I think out west they would love to have your problems, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I can tell you last year in Wisconsin there were maybe 30, 30 farms that were affected by wolves and uh, about... 30 or 40 instances of reported uh, dogs being killed by wolves. So just to put some numbers on it, it's, it's mm. not a, a huge problem. Speaking of numbers, what are the effects of wolves uh, in the northern Midwest having on deer and moose numbers and behavior? I bet you guys have all kinds of cool studies going on around that. You would think there'd be all kinds of cool studies. There have actually been relatively few uh, so far to date, but, um, but I'll give you a flavor of some of the, a couple of things we're finding. Uh, First, sort of the big picture, uh, if you look at some of the work that Bill Ripple and Bob Besher are doing out in Yellowstone and some of the Western uh, national parks, you're seeing very spectacular changes in response to, uh, to wolves coming back in the landscape. We see sort of a, a much more muted response or a more subtle response in the Great Lakes region. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. Um, but, you know, it makes our job as scientists a little bit harder. We need to look a little harder and get a little bit more creative in terms of how we approach the problem. So if we were to rank uh, the various threats to deer uh, in, the, in the Great Lakes uh, forests, uh, you know, the number one threat to, to deer is, uh, is weather. Uh, cold winters uh, kill deer and, um, you know, 
once uh, March and, and April start rolling on and they still have a thick snow cover, uh, you know, the, the deer are getting, uh, you know, their fats, uh, fat reserves are depleted and they, they, you know, just end up dying off, especially if you get a, a cold snap uh, late in the season. So winter remains the number one killer for, uh, for deer in this region. And then second, uh, people and, uh, you know, the nine day gun season is sort of the second sort of major source of mortality for our deer. And then as you work your way down, we find uh, bear and bobcat end up doing quite a number on deer coyotes as well, particularly during the fawning season, um, where for about three or four weeks a year, those three predators end up taking uh, you know, tens of thousands of, of deer collectively. Um, and wolves themselves are only taking about maybe 20 to 25,000 deer a year. So it's, it's not having a big effect when you consider there's about a million deer in the state of Wisconsin. Um, however, what the wolves are doing, which none of the other predators are doing, is they are a year-round threat to the deer. And as a result, uh, are, have greatly uh, altered uh, deer behavior. And I think that's where we start to see the, uh, the effects that cascade out into uh, into the, the vegetation and into the other wildlife. It's not because deer have become uh, particularly scarce in the landscape. It's just that they're starting to use their forest in a very different way, in a more cautious way, uh, in a way that's actually benefiting lots of other wildlife. For example, uh, when I first started looking at this, uh, this problem with one of my graduate students, Crystal Bouchard, we were looking at uh, three plants that back in the 80s and 90s, we were looking at as uh, these were indicators of, of overbrowsing by deer. We were looking at uh, the, the blue bead lily and large white flower trillium and Solomon seal, three plants that you know deer just absolutely hammer uh, when, they're, when deer become abundant. And what we did was we looked... Uh, so we across the landscape and we looked at places where wolves had been established for, uh, for over a decade. And then we looked at different places where wolves were just starting to come back or where they hadn't arrived yet. And what we found was once wolves had been established for, uh, for a decade or, or you know, close to 15 years, we saw that the plants in those areas were bigger, usually 30 to 50% bigger. They were uh, about two to three times more likely to, to reproduce. Uh, and so there was sort of this whole change taking place in the forest understory with, with the uh, wildflowers, sort of as, as exemplified by these three particular plants that we used as indicators, which sort of showed us that when the wolves arrive, you know, the plants sort of move into this slow motion celebration phase where it's like, hey, you know, we're gonna, they're going to stop eating us uh, and it's time to start flowering and, uh, and reproducing for the first time, often in decades. So that was one of the first things that we, uh, we saw. Um, another type of effect we saw was just an increase in species richness of, of trees and shrubs and wildflowers in habitats that we uh, thought were uh, areas with an unusually large amount of, of deer browsing pressure. So in our region, we have these sort of low-lying forests and swamps dominated by white cedar with a sphagnum uh, moss in the understory and then all kinds of really cool wildflowers that grow in those areas. And these are areas that uh, deer could go into in the summertime and just you know, uh, eat all this you know, beautiful lush vegetation. Uh, however, with wolves on the landscape, th these areas sort of became uh, a bit riskier because you don't want to walk into a swamp mm. where you, know, you could easily get stuck if there's things around that might kill you. So what's happened was uh, we saw that when uh, 
when wolves came back in the landscape, deer basically stopped uh, foraging in these places. And we saw a big increase in the diversity of, of tree saplings, of, of shrubs, and of, of forest herbs, all sort of returning to these uh, cedar swamps that hadn't been seen in decades. So <clears throat> these particular habitats where deer are exceptionally vulnerable seem to be, be uh, recovering the fastest uh, of what we see out there on the landscape. Yeah. That uh, that meme that continues to go around to this day of uh, wolves and how they change the shape of the river. I can't even remember who put that out at this point or what river the study. I think it was Yellowstone, possibly. Um, it was possibly Yellowstone, and that was based on some of the work that uh, Bill Ripple and Bob Eshta had done. Oh wow! So we're coming in a little full circle here. We are. <laughs> I, I just I love what you just described because it's a description that could have a video of its own, right? Maybe That's it right. does. Have you, have you guys uh, gotten into the uh, viral video business up there? <laughs> we haven't. Uh, Rama Callahan uh, took some great pictures of the cedar swamps, of, of cedar swamps where the, the wolves are absent or rare and then where the wolves were, uh, were common and have been around for, for uh, several years. And you can, even these black and white photos in the Journal of Ecology, it's, it's really apparent that, uh, you know, one has had deer impacts for decades and the other is just seems to be you'd swear that there was a fence around it, keeping deer out and just with the response of the vegetation. Well, this next question is rather geeky. I want to leave it geeky. I didn't rewrite it. Uh, and the geeks listening are going to love it. And then you may want to explain it a little bit before you give the answer, <laughs> but would, this is from uh, John Davis, our executive director at, at rewilding would recovery of pumas in the great lakes region have additional trophic cascade benefits or is one top carnivore sufficient to play that keystone role? That was, that was loaded with uh, definitions begging <laughs> for your help. Boy, that's, yeah, that's a great question. I, I've been thinking about that for, uh, for quite a bit. And I'll tell you right now that, uh, that my friends in, in Wisconsin DNR are, uh, you know, sort of pulling out their hair and screaming, no pumas, we've got, a, we've got our hands full with wolves. Please no pumas. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but to the question, the, <clears throat> we see, I think that there's places uh, in, the, in the Great Lakes forests where wolves would do, uh, would do better. There's, there's better habitat for wolves in the landscape. And then there's other areas that are a little rockier uh, with a little bit more of an elevation relief where pumas would do reasonably well. Um, and wolves might be there, but you know, not using those areas as uh, sort of predator traps the same way that uh, that pumas might use them. So, you know, the the wolves and pumas both have uh, have very different hunting styles, um, and I think that they could end up being complementary. Uh, and I I would love to to do the experiments to see how how that assemblage of predators would uh, would end up shaping not just wolves or, uh, or deer but uh, end up shaping the whole uh, community of, of uh, mammals and, and then also uh, plants and birds and what have you, because I think we'd start to see some very different things uh, with pumas. And, and just to give you an example, um, you know, we think of, of wolves as you know, they're, they're predators of deer and of moose and, and ungulates, but one of the things we don't think about, and this is sort of an un, unstudied area that really needs some work, is that uh, usually in the spring and summer, as, uh, as beavers are starting to build their lodges and you have pups starting to leave packs for the first time, uh, you've got these solitary wolves that are going out and can't bring down a deer by themselves. And so a lot of them are actually eating beavers. 
And because beavers are such important ecosystem engineers, you know, turning cold water streams into warm water uh, ponds that then, you know, eventually will convert over into uh, open meadows. If you end up reducing the beaver numbers in the landscape, that's going to end up changing the way the landscape expresses itself, not just in the short term, but really over centuries. And so, the, you know, there's all kinds of questions of, you know, what happens when you introduce additional predators because like the, the pumas are not just going to eat uh, deer, you know, pumas will eat porcupines, pumas will also go after, uh, you know, other mesocarnivores. So there's, there's all kinds of, of cascades that can come into play that uh, would be really interesting to look at. We just, you know, these are, are questions that uh, we haven't even had a chance to, uh, to explore or answer given the, uh, the decimation on our landscapes. Uh, the DNR guys and, and uh, you know, managers of all kinds, uh, Forest Service, BLM, Natural Resources, all those guys really do start to think that they are in charge of the distribution and uh, effects of species, don't they? Because, <laughs> I mean, they sort themselves out. Weren't there a lot of studies on when the wolves were introduced in Yellowstone? The elevation change and where cats were hanging out um, was marked and that there were other things that were observed. I mean, don't these things sort themselves out? In nature? They, they do end up sorting themselves out. You know, the, the thing about the, the wildlife managers is, you know, they're, they're the ones who hear from people who have, uh, have complaints or have issues. True. Yeah. But, uh, you know, of course the wildlife is, is doing what it's going to do. And yeah, we saw the, uh, in Yellowstone, um, you know, different behaviors of, of the elk in response to, uh, to wolves being on the landscape in terms of where they were foraging, uh, you know, even how they were spending their, uh, their winters um, as, a, as a way of trying to avoid uh, predation risk. So, Yeah, coyotes um, could run around and do whatever they wanted. The mountain lions could run around and do whatever they wanted. And uh, well, you put yeah. wolves back in. It's almost like you put a hat and a badge on the wolves <laughs> and they just police the whole place back into some semblance of order. It, it's crazy because, uh, you know, where, where I work right now uh, in Wisconsin, we've, we actually have a fair number of coyotes and wolves coexisting, which really shouldn't happen. Um, but because our coyote numbers are still relatively high, the, uh, the red wolf number, or sorry, the red fox numbers are down, uh, which I think is leading to an increase in the number of uh, small rodents like mice, which has led to increases in things like the, the deer ticks and, uh, you know, that are carrying Lyme disease and, uh, and other uh, human pathogens like anaplasmosis and borealis as well. So there's, um, yeah, it, it, the, the chains of interactions just, just seem to keep going as far as we can see. In that area that you're working, is it because that in that particular area there aren't enough wolves or... I mean, I've always been led to believe as an amateur following all of these things uh, as, as well as I can, that wolves seem almost like an instant panacea to uh, overpopulation of coyotes. That's what we're usually told in the, in the broader media anyway. It is, a, it is true in the broader media uh, sense. It's, it's largely true in the West and, you know, it should be true, um, except I'm not seeing it where I work. And... Um, you know, I don't have a good explanation for it at this time. This is one of the things I have a student just getting started on with. Uh, we're expanding our camera trap network uh, to get better handles on, uh, on all of our canids, our uh, wolf and coyote and red fox. And we're also looking for gray fox as well. But, uh, 
we That'd have be really a, interesting to uh, to find out what's going on there. That's yeah, we, we have don't uh, usually hear we, that. <laughs> we have uh, two wolf packs on six thousand acres of forest. Um, although uh, we have one pack sort of that sort of spills into the southern part of our property, another pack on the on the northern part of the property, um, and we you know we'll pick up uh, coyotes one day on a camera trap and a wolf the very next day on that same trap. So hmm. uh, you know they're they're using the same habitats and it's it's uh, surprising, but um, but there you have it. In, well, uh, if I was, was, I wouldn't want to, I, you know, whatever the coyotes are doing right, according to them, <laughs> I still not would not want to be a coyote <laughs> in that area because I mean, change is going to come, I would imagine. I, I think you're right. And, uh, you know, when you when you get uh, get acclimated into a particular place and, and study it over uh, over several decades, you begin to see the, the ebbs and flows of, of population numbers. And, you know, we're just perhaps at one of those points where. Uh, you know, we're waiting for the waiting for the coyote population to drop. It just hasn't quite happened yet. Well, changing gears a little bit and to something that is near and dear to uh, everybody here at Rewilding, um, talking about connectivity. So uh, you have islands like like everywhere else uh, with, that are bifurcated by roads and logging and development and all of those kinds of things. Um, and it, from a connectivity point of view are there opportunities that you're looking at or that you have noticed um to better protect uh the forests uh, in your area or or in the larger area yeah in in the uh, the larger area there's actually a fairly uh extensive network of public lands that runs from uh, north central minnesota uh, including superior national forest and the boundary waters uh, down through wisconsin with uh, with state and national forests including the nicolay and shawamagon national forests the Northern Highlands and uh, State Forest, um, over into uh, into the Upper Peninsula with uh, with its national forests and state forests, including the Ottawa and the Huron National Forests. Um, so there there is sort of that national that uh, that natural connectivity provided by a public lands network. So uh, <clears throat> along with uh, with the public lands, we have uh, all the problems that we've seen with public lands management over decades. We've got the uh, you know, the legacy of, of decades of, of bad management of, of road densities that are just uh, ridiculously high, um, you know, and then also sort of scattered throughout uh, parts of the region are a lot of uh, vacation homes as well. This is an area with uh, lots of uh, glacial origin lakes um, from the last ice age um, and uh, cottages all along the, uh, the shores of, of those lakes. So, there's uh, there's connectivity, but there's a fair amount of fragmentation as well. And you know, in terms of trying to think about the future, you know, there's all sorts of possibilities in terms of what might happen. You know, you can imagine a scenario where you get a depopulation of rural areas as people move into the cities, uh, following um, natural disasters for which there's there's just no money to rebuild. Uh, you know, Wisconsin, I know, has seen uh, some major flooding this year. Uh, Highways uh, and bridges over uh, streams completely eliminated. Um, uh, you know, at, at some point, you know, some of these areas might be abandoned, and um, you know, which would provide opportunities for connectivity. And of course, the flip side of that is you might end up seeing sort of the opposite of, of more people trying to move out into these rural areas. So ultimately, you know, the the, the potential for connectivity is there. And it's really going to be over the next several decades in terms of how things play out, 
with our uh, increasingly topsy-turvy climate and uh, everything that goes along with it in terms of how people are going to respond to, to those changes in the landscape. And then as a result, how's the landscape going to respond to the presence or absence of people? You've no doubt seen an awful lot of plans uh, over the years uh, with work from the Wildlands Project. And I used to, I was the executive director at Sky Island Alliance uh, in the mid to late 90s and worked on that. One of the original um, big connectivity plans that came out of Wildlands. Keeping those kinds of maps in your in your mind, what in terms of feasibility a Great Lakes Wildway would look like? Where might it run if, if you were drawing the map mm-hmm. today? Well, I, I did a map uh, back in 2001 that was published in the Natural Areas Journal. I did that with, uh, with Glenn Barry and Steve Venture and Don Waller. And uh, we were just playing around with some, uh, some RGIS back uh, at that time and looking at things like road densities and availability of public forests and looking at uh, existing forest cover. And we found that the upper peninsula of Michigan is uh, extremely wild, as is uh, the, the arrowhead of, of uh, Minnesota. And for those not familiar with the upper Midwest, the arrowhead refers to the region basically uh, north of, of, uh, of Duluth. Duluth is at the far western part of Lake Superior. And uh, there's uh, a part of Minnesota that sort of shoots off to the northeast and comes to sort of a point uh, up on the north shore of uh, Lake Superior. These are all, uh, you know, really wild areas, low human population densities, uh, high amount of public land space, um, high forest cover. And uh, because it stretches almost all the way around uh, the south shore of Lake Superior and into uh, over, all the way over to Lake Her- uh, Huron, there's uh, just an incredible opportunity there. Uh, the greatest degree of fragmentation, the greatest challenges are actually going to be sort of in north central Wisconsin, where there's a, a fair bit of development compared to the other two places. Uh, but at the same time, there's still some nice remote areas of habitat there, including some uh, some jack pine barrens um, that burn quite frequently, and as a result, uh, have very low human population densities. So there's there's potential there. Uh, with uh, especially in Michigan and Minnesota. It's just a question of getting good connectivity through Wisconsin. The wolves would tell us that there's good connectivity, but uh, wolves appear more adaptable and and, uh, less wilderness dependent than we would have thought uh, two or three decades ago. So those might not be the good indicator that we're looking for. Something like uh, a pine marten might give us a better indication of of habitat connectivity in the landscape. That's a really good insight into the problems that are faced when people do sit down and go, where would we connect the dots? Where would we put these islands together with cores and buffers? And what could we use as, you know, a keystone or umbrella, whatever you want to call it, species? And a lot of people might think you'd use wolves. or, and But people like you on the ground really know what probably would be the best thing. And uh, that assumption would be wrong in this case. Uh, you, you, you would want to look for something... Uh, like a pie martin and and base it on that and that's the importance of being able to work with people on the ground who really know what's going on there and you can't just look at the whole globe and go let's just base this completely on wolves and bears and pumas and there might be some other things that we might want to at least consider to throw in the mix um because you really have to do that don't you you really it's it's nice to help people understand the issue and why we want this connectivity here and there by basing it on a, a, a charismatic species. But as a biologist, you know that there's an awful lot of really fine 
points in developing these things, or there, there would be if you were to be developing these things. Uh, so that real connectivity that was meaningful in a, in a really big way in terms of biodiversity of an area, not just one species or another having that connectivity. I think that's exactly right. You know, and 20 years ago, I, I would have, you know, unequivocally said, yeah, wolves are going to be the best indicator of uh, where we should place a, uh, a wildways network in this region. Um, but the wolves and, and their just their, their sheer adaptability uh, revealed that, no, it's uh, they're not going to be the best uh, indicator um, and maybe we should be looking for something else. And, you know, our, our pine martins in this region have not done especially well, despite uh, there being protections uh, in place to protect, to, um, you know, reduce harvest and trapping and whatnot. Uh, and it's, it's not clear uh, even to the biologists exactly why are they not doing so well? And it's thought, and there's not real good data on this, but uh, at least the intuition is, it's really been the loss of old growth forests and the absence of you know, large uh, living and dead trees that they, they use for, for denning uh, and uh, using as sort of uh, runways that uh, is, is really the key missing linkage. And so as we bring back uh, older forest, uh, we can start creating habitat for the martens and the martens can provide that overall connectivity. But that's not something I would have thought about 20 years ago, but it's, yeah, it just... Um, it takes time uh, out in the woods and it takes time working with uh, other biologists and making observations and, and trying to sort things out to, uh, to sort of figure out what those key indicators are going to be. Uh, final question for today, and I think we're going to need to have you back, especially when you start getting numbers on the, the studies that you're working on um, that had just started, because I'm keenly interested, I'm sure our listeners are too, to find out what you have here uh, and your students have found. But in general, we like to wrap these up trying to get a gauge for what our guests would love to see. And as a professor, you have a unique uh, view here. What would be your advice for young people interested in biology? Um, any particular areas that need study in your mind, uh, it, in your area? Maybe it's specific geographically or types of jobs that can really make a difference or subjects uh, that are valuable to a career in the natural mm -hmm. sciences? Sure. Um, a lot of my, uh, my master's students are not going on for PhDs. They're, they're going to get their master's and then go out and work in the consulting world or work uh, in wildlife biology. And so I've, I've given this sort of a uh, fair bit of thought. And um, there, there's a couple, if you sort of think of your, uh, you know, what you can contribute as a, as a jigsaw puzzle, the key pieces that are really going to help put together a, a solid career where you can make a real difference include things like, uh, first and foremost, just cultivating a curiosity of the natural world, getting out and making observations, you know, leaving the books at home and just going out and observing and, and trying to figure out on your own, you know, what are you seeing and what's going on and sort of develop those, uh, those outdoor skills and those observation skills uh, as best you can. If you're uh, in school pursuing uh, a degree, uh, geographic information systems and, and learning how to use uh, you know, computers to do mapping and uh, not just mapping, but also modeling is uh, critically important for, for going forward. It's a, it's, a, it's a marketable skill, but it's also a, a really creative skill that sort of helps you visualize not just what's there, but also what's possible. So I encourage all of my students to learn GIS. Uh, I encourage my students also just to, to pick a group of organisms. It doesn't matter if you're in the birds or beetles or, or frogs. 
uh, you know, pick a group uh, and just learn about it. You know, go out. Uh, if, you, if you're in birds, you should be out with Audubon every spring when the, when the migrants are coming through and, and learn your birds and learn from other people who have been watching birds for longer than you have. Um, because they, they might not have, uh, you know, biology degrees, but they have uh, incredible insights that they've built up over the years that have made them good birders, and they, they have insights that uh, we don't necessarily have in, in sciences. So, uh, you know, learn from, uh, you know, don't necessarily just learn from scientists, learn from, from everybody out there who's connected to the natural world in some way. So if you can combine, uh, you know, uh, a passion for organisms, a passion for uh, curiosity, and some mapping skills. If, if you use that as a base, um, that'll take you a long way, especially if you're interested in sciences and, and working on, on research projects. If you bring those skills to the table, you're, you're going to make important contributions. Tom, I feel like we've started something today that's demanding that we check in with you periodically because you're in motion, you're really doing stuff on the ground and it develops on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. And I think you've given me more questions uh, for another episode than I was planning. <laughs> so thank you, first of all, for taking the time for being on Rewilding Earth podcast and for being one of our very first uh, to kick this off. I really, really appreciate it. Well, it's, it's been my pleasure. It's been, uh, it's been great talking to you. Uh, and to all the uh, rewilding folks out there, please carry on. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.